take out the handout sheet that uh, Pastor Eric drew your attention to, and we can get started. We are in part four of our First Timothy series, and it's entitled A Shepherd's Resume, and we need to talk a little bit about what it means to lead among uh, believers, what it means to be a servant leader. We have been serving a lot, but what if God calls you to serve in a leadership capacity? What does that look like? What type of people ought we to be if we're going to guide God's children? Uh, the qualifications are extraordinary, and there's a few things that I need to give to you and let you know specifically about the ministry here at Bridgeway so that we're all on the same page. But I think it is a good thing to want to lead. I think that scripture tells us it's a good thing to want to guide God's kids. It's just not easy. And when I say God's kids, I mean all of us that in God's sight, we are all just little kids, hopefully, especially in our hearts. And it's not an easy task, but I know that God is tapping some of you on the shoulder and asking you to step up to leadership. So it would only be um, kind to let you know what you're walking into. And that's the passage that we're going to study today. But as we begin, I want to share three quick things with you about how we view leadership here to try to correct uh, some misunderstanding. Um, there are a lot of people that want to serve in leadership. They want to have uh, upfront roles. They want to guide others, and they believe they are gifted to do so. Uh, if that is you, I have three guidelines that I need you to watch out for. Uh, the first one is this. Talent is not enough. Uh, you may be extraordinary and the best at something that you want to do. And you look out up here and you say, well, I could do that better than so-and-so. The answer to that is probably, yeah. Yeah, you probably can. Um, however, character and heart matters. And just because you're really good at something doesn't mean that God has asked you to be a leader at this moment. Second thing is that a good heart is not enough. A lot of people say, well, I have a great heart. Or, you know what, I've served so long, I've earned a role to do this. We do not earn roles here. We do not give roles out as a reward. We only try to follow what the Lord says, is this person called to this particular ministry at this time? So just having a good heart does not mean that you are fit to lead other people at this time. The third thing is that commitment matters. There are some people that have come into this church and they are more gifted than most everybody else. Their hearts are extraordinary. However, they're new. And as a protective dad over this church, I am not willing to hand my kids over to somebody I do not know. So I need there to be some commitment to the church and some longevity before I'm able to hand over people and lives to you. I know that some of you have come from churches in the past where leadership was either not healthy or damaging. And so I hope that you appreciate that here at Bridgeway, we try to hold a high standard for who serves you and who guides you and who leads you. It's very, very important to us. Uh, bottom line of what we're going to talk about today is a fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. And it's this. Leaders are held to a different standard. Leaders are held to a different standard. It does not mean that they're not good Christians if they do not lead at this time. It just means that when you step into leadership, there's a huge target that is placed on your back and you take a lot of shots. Satan is trying to get you out 
And so we need to do some examination before we allow you to step forward. We don't want you to fail. We don't want anyone to get hurt. So we do a lot of investigation before we select you. Now, uh, let's make it super practical. Um, how does the church here at Bridgeway, if you're new, this may be interesting. If you've been here a while, this is the snoring part, is that uh, Bridgeway is led by a group of seven elders. Um, there are three paid pastors that are elders. That is myself as a senior pastor, Lance. And then there is Russ, who is the executive pastor. And then there's Mark, who's the associate pastor. We are all elders among the seven. The other four are unpaid volunteers. That is John Lee, Lane Gibbs, Dave Turner, and Jay Evans. Like I was talking last night, and Jay was sitting right here in the front row, I said, Jay, how long have you been an elder? He said, I've been serving 10 years. It's a long time to serve. Remember, they don't get any benefits of that. They just serve you. Our elders currently are what's considered life appointed. So we take it very seriously who gets on there because, quite frankly, the only way they get off the board is that if the elder board by majority roots them out for some reason and asks them to step away, or if they choose to step away personally, they're allowed to do that, or they die. So, needless to say, we kind of take it seriously that if I'm running the church with some other guys... I need them to be at a certain place where they can handle the business issues. We handle a lot of business on the elder board. It's not just the spiritual side of things. But on the spiritual side of things, they need to be able to know scripture backwards and forwards because we handle those types of issues. Now, it sounds like a lot. What the Bible is about to tell us is that it's even more than that. Um, on top of that, outside of the elder board, we have a staff, 13 full-time staff, seven part-time staff. They would be what we would consider in scripture today, a little bit more in the role of deacon. Deacon means humble servant. They are on staff, but then there's some volunteer outside of that. There's volunteer leaders who run ministries. They also would be in that deacon category. We have no less than 25 significant ministries operating right now in the church. Those are all led by some people. For example, Vicki and her point women run the women's ministry, which ministers to all of the church. She is retired, does it all by volunteer. She's not on staff. She has her own life to run and also has to run this ministry. These are very significant positions. So we look at the people and we say, is their heart good? Are they qualified? And has God called them? If so, we get behind them 100%. Let's dive into scripture. First Timothy chapter three, verse one, first Timothy chapter three, Verse one, what we'll do is I'm going to read through the qualifications for an elder. Um, so you can basically look and take shots at all of us and basically look and go, wow, they are certainly not up to par. Um, which is why after we finish today's message, I'm going to quit. Okay. So here we go. Chapter three, verse one. Um, I think it was page 839. Is that what it is in the blue Bibles? Page 839. Yeah begins like this. Paul is still talking to a young pastor, talking about what type of leadership he needs around him. And he says this, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Oh, so that's pretty easy. Have I mentioned that in the last year, the one topic that has come up in more elder meetings than any other is that we need more elders. So right after that, I would suggest to you this. If you know someone that would be good and fits these types of qualifications, I need to know their names because having seven elders in a church of this size is not appropriate in our estimation. We don't want to get too big because then it creates a problem, but we would love to bring in some more people to the elder board. So I know we're going to be going through this and scaring the living daylights out of anyone you might suggest. However, we do need you because the church needs you. And maybe God is whispering to you. Let's go ahead and pray for this morning. Heavenly Father, I don't know who you have. I don't know what people need to step forward in leadership. I don't know who needs to step back. I don't know any of that. Yet it is so obvious to you. I pray right now, Lord, that we would grow in our understanding of what it means to be a healthy family here. That we would know what it means to hold one another accountable, and at the same time encourage one another, knowing that it's a difficult task. May we not be on the devil's side of slander, but may we support the leadership of this church as those that guide us in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I said amen so I could sneeze. All right, here we go. First Timothy chapter three, verse one, let's try to dive through this and see what God has for us. Here is a trustworthy saying that means, uh, all the folks agree that this is a super important thing to talk about. So I'm going to mention it again. That's what Paul says. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on, if anyone wants to be an overseer, he desires, meaning with a strong passion, a noble task. It is a good thing. But now let's talk about the overseer. The overseer is actually a phrase. In Greek, it is presbyteros. It is also where we get the term elder from. What does elder really mean? It means old man. Now, I know all the elders personally, and I wouldn't consider any of them old. However, if you're 20, they're all old. Okay? Now, to me, they all seem relatively young. What is the purpose? Well, Elders historically have been the ones that have maturity or wisdom in a given circle. So you would have elders in all the different cultures of the world, people that would step out and say, I would love to guide and people respect them. So this term overseer is interchangeable with a bunch of terms in scripture. I want you to think that the same office is represented by the term overseer, elder, bishop, pastor, teacher, leader, and ruler. All of those are used in scripture to represent the same office. So when you're going through, you'll go, well, Paul's talking about this. What do they do? 
Practically speaking, all of them do the same thing. And you will notice that in Titus, there's another list that's almost identical to this about what elders are supposed to be like with only a few adjustments. Paul was trying to go out and make sure we had good leadership in our churches. So where did they get the idea to have an official title of a spiritual leader called an elder? There's two stories. Long time ago, a guy named Moses invited his father-in-law to visit. We all know what happens when you invite in-laws to visit. They have something to say about how you're running things, right? Isn't that true? Okay. Now, he invites his father-in-law, whose name is Jethro, which makes me smile. He came out to visit. It's his wife's dad. He comes in, and it was, bring your father-in-law to work day. So he brought him to work, and Moses, from morning till night, was judging over Israel. Now, granted, Israel at this time was probably around 600,000. All right? That's quite a group to have one guy lead them. So he's sitting, and from morning till night, all day long, he sat in the seat, and people brought problems to him for him to solve because he was the liaison between them and God. So Jethro hangs out, watches this, and when he gets done with his day, Jethro says, what are you doing? He's like, what? And he goes, what you're doing isn't good. Isn't that just like an in-law? He says, what you're doing isn't good. I wouldn't do it that way. What are you talking about? No, you can't. You're going to burn yourself out. What? Now everybody's frustrated because now they're all waiting in line and you can never get to everybody. No, this is a terrible idea, Moses. Now I'm going to give you some advice. Now, if God is with you and you agree with me, because God's on my side, all right, if you agree with me and God's with you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to appoint officials over thousands, hundreds, and fifties. That way, all the simple issues, they can solve themselves. Because really, man, you don't need to be hearing all this. Only the most important things should ever make their way to you. There will be plenty for you to do. But then everybody doesn't have to wait forever to get information from you. Other people are equipped to do this. Moses said, you know what? You're right. And he launched out and started having a whole group of leadership underneath him with structure. That's where it started. But then something else happened in the book of Numbers. They were traveling through the desert and every day they ate the same food called manna. Well, everyone was sick and tired of it. And they were grumbling and complaining. And they said, I hate this manna. I don't even like the leadership. I don't like anything about my life. I'm miserable. Wham, 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 wham. Now this troubled Moses. God, it says, got angry. So God's mad. Moses is mad, but Moses is at the end of his rope. He literally prays to God and said, why have you done this to me? Why did you make me a leader of a bunch of idiots? I'm sitting here wandering through this desert. If this is how you're going to treat me, kill me now, he said, which is pretty extreme. So God says, all right, I got a plan. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab 70 of the elders that have already been named elders because everybody respects them. They're the head of their clan or whatever. And out of a group of this many people, 70 would rise up. He said, you know, the 70 elders. Bring them all in front of me, and I will help solve your problem. Well, they go before the tent of meeting. All of them gather together except two. 
Now, if you can get 68 out of 70 to a meeting, that's pretty impressive, right? But two decide not to show up. They're hanging out back at home. That probably irritated everybody else. In front of that, God said, I will take of the spirit that is upon you, Moses, and I will place it on all of the other 70. Now, you're going to go, I don't really understand that. How is the Holy Spirit only on Moses? Remember, old school, Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would only come down upon people for a task, purpose, or specific time. For example, when David became king, the Holy Spirit would come upon him. But remember how Saul obliqued and went the wrong direction? The Holy Spirit was removed from him and placed on David. So that is why in one of the Psalms, David says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, which we sing in a song. That is not appropriate today because that's an Old Testament concept. He said, don't take it away. That means I'm no longer king and I'm no longer shielded. Moses says, great, you're going to put the spirit on everybody. God descends down the Holy Spirit, hits all 70, and they start to prophesy, including the two that didn't show up to the meeting. A young kid runs in from the village and goes, these two guys are prophesying. What's going on? Joshua hears about it. Joshua is Moses' right-hand man, his bodyguard. And he says, my Lord, stop them. Don't let them do that. They didn't show up to the meeting. And Moses goes, are you jealous for my sake? What, did they now have the Holy Spirit like I do? I would rather all of them, all people here in Israel would have the Holy Spirit because then we could help lead each other and guide each other and correct each other and encourage each other. What Moses wished for occurred at Pentecost. We operate now with Moses's dream that the Holy Spirit indwells all believers and he is speaking to you and guiding you. And that's why you are able to guide me and I'm able to guide you. We always think that it's very difficult today. As far as leadership goes, it's light years easier when you have spirit indwelt believers. But that is why the whole elder concept being spiritual leaders came into play. Now, if you're going to have these leaders of the church, which you would think probably as pastors, what ought their qualifications be? Here, let's go back to our passage. Being an overseer, uh, sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, verse 2, the overseer must be above reproach. That word means criticism leveled against him cannot stick. There's always going to be accusation. There's always going to be people that don't like somebody. But upon examination of wise people, it does not stick. The accuser, Satan, cannot root them out. By having obvious glaring errors in their life. Above reproach. Number two. The husband of but one wife. What does that refer to? We look at it and we go, well, it seems like a husband of but one wife. I just, what are you trying to say? I'm saying, who are we talking about? What are we trying to correct? Does he mean a husband of one wife? Meaning you can't be single? Right? Because he just said you need to be a husband. Is that what he meant? Are we trying to restrict single men from serving in that capacity? Probably not. Why? Because that would have restricted Paul. 
Paul the Apostle couldn't have been an elder because he was single. So probably not. Well, what does it mean? Does it mean polygamy? Polygamy wasn't a huge deal at the time, although it could refer to that. And you would go, well, Abraham had multiple wives, and you go on through all the patriarchs. They all ended up having multiple wives, so why isn't polygamy still going on today? At some point, God said, no, we're not doing that. Maybe it addresses that. Early on, the mandate in the early church in the second and third centuries was that this referred to people that were remarried, whether by divorce or widow. They actually stopped widows that remarried from serving as elders. They said it was because if you got remarried, it would show that you were overindulging yourself, which whatever. I don't see it that way, but okay. That was their early mandate. They said, no, if you're divorced and remarried, you cannot serve as an elder. If you are widowed and remarried, you can't serve as an elder. I don't necessarily think that that is what it's referring to. There's some other mandates in scripture about divorce, and we'll address those in a moment. So what does it mean? The final option, and the one that I think is most likely, is it actually means a one-woman man. That's what it says in Greek. I believe it's talking about character of heart. I believe that it's saying that these types of leaders cannot have a woman on the side. They cannot be untrue to their wife. In thought, in deed, in action, they are committed to the bride they have. I think that's what it's referring to. Takes it a little bit further than what we were talking about before. Moves on. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, that means even keeled, and self-controlled, meaning internally mastered in their mind and it being safe and sound. They must be respectable, externally well-behaved, and an orderly life, not chaotic, They must be hospitable with an open heart to other people and their house is open as well. And they must be able to teach. That is the one distinguishing characteristic between an elder and a deacon. An ability to handle the word of God. It means that you know what the word of God says. You can communicate it and you can argue it with intelligence. It says not given to drunkenness. That phrase in Greek, in ancient Greece, meant tipsy or rowdy, not violent, meaning not dominating, harsh bullies, but gentle, knowing what to do when in gentleness, not quarrelsome, not chip on their shoulder, always looking for a fight, not a lover of money, not greedy, but he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, How can he take care of God's church? This is where the divorce issue comes in, in discussion. There was a lot said in the early church about what happened before Jesus and after Jesus as they became a new life. But divorce ends up being a discussion to have based on how did you manage your family? What happened? What occurred within the divorce? How did it go down? And that is always examined Whenever anybody begins to have a discussion here about being an elder, it says he must not be a recent convert. That word in Greek is a neophyte. It means newly planted. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited. That word is smoke puffed up. And 
fall under the same judgment as the devil. What judgment did the devil fall under? Pride. It is believed by most that the Old Testament says that Lucifer, a good angel, probably the highest level of angel, an archangel, got pride in his heart, decided to try to take God out and take his position. That didn't fly super well. He got shut down and expelled out of heaven. He said, any new person that's brand new to the faith that is automatically selected out and given a position of authority has not got their legs under them yet. They would automatically go, wow, this is easy and this is all working and hey, now I'm running people and let me just give you a quick side note. And this is not to insult any of you that are brand new believers, but brand new believers are a little off kilter. Okay. You're going to go, what do you mean? You're finding your groove. Sometimes you're going to go psycho on everybody and start screaming at everybody's sin and trying to tell everybody they need to get saved. And they tell you to go away. Then other times you get completely mellowed out. And you go over and go, I don't know if I can even do this. You have to find your groove. You're learning, you're growing, you're learning how to walk. That is not the time to be guiding other people until you settle down and find your groove with the Lord. So, not a recent convert. And then, lastly, it says, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. That's non-believers. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your business dealings. Do you have a good reputation? If not, you may well, it says, so that he will not fall into disgrace. Someone can completely blow you out of the water and you will fall into Satan's trap. Satan is trying to accuse and rip leaders out. If you do not have a good reputation, they're already gunning for you. And you're pretty much dead in the water. Now, after hearing all 15 or 16 qualifications, who wants to be one? Okay, fantastic. Right, we're all a little bit nervous now, right? It's a big deal, but I think that it's very important. Let's move on in the passage. Verse 6. Deacons, the second group, deacons, as I told you, means humble servant. They likewise, with almost the same qualifications, are to be men worthy of respect sincere that word in greek means not two-tongued you're not saying one thing to one group and one thing to another you're not playing this political game you are honest with integrity not indulging in much wine a lot of talk about wine you guys notice that apparently in ephesus there was a lot of partying going on they said no we're not doing that and not pursuing dishonest gain they must keep hold of deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. That means be deep in their faith, knowing what God wants and then actually living it out. This is for all servants in the church. They must first be tested, observed and examined. And it says then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women... Now, in the NIV, you'll notice it says they're wives. The word wife and woman is the same in Greek. It actually just means the women. So here we have a debate that rages. Who is being referred to here? Does it mean the wives of the deacons? Does it mean the women that are deacons? Although they did not have that office originally, there were women serving. 
practically as deacons. Later, the term deaconess got locked in. That was not there yet. So what's happening when it says, likewise, did it start a third group? If so, why are the women mentioned right in the middle of the male deacons? Should it refer to their wives? If it's their wives, why is there no restrictions for elders' wives? You understand this whole thing gets a little bit mixed up. Most likely, most scholars believe that it's referring to while people are serving, when women serve, these are the type of women that should be serving, that it's almost functioning as women deacons. So let's move forward. What should they be like? But the women are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Continues on, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. And those that serve well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. They are respected, they are purified out in motive, and the Lord looks upon them with joy. Now, where did this concept come from? We saw the elders, where the deacons come from. Well, early on, there's a story in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, where the church started exploding after Pentecost. People were coming constantly. Even at Pentecost, it went from 120 to 3,000 in one day. That's an extraordinary jump in the church. The apostles were scrambling. They couldn't get everything done, and things were falling through the cracks. They started panicking about it because people were arguing over the distribution of food. The practical matters of the ministry weren't getting done appropriately. The apostles said, we're stuck. If we're supposed to be in charge, we can't just neglect teaching the word of God. We still need to be out there sharing. We can't stop praying. We're not going to take time away from God. Not if we're going to intercede for these people. So what we must do is start a new tier of leadership. And they selected out some men, some men to be table servers. Basically, they would do the practical pieces of the ministry. Guys like Stephen, we know him to be the first martyr, the first Christian martyr. Guys like Philip, the evangelist, who later on we see him baptizing an Ethiopian official, doing the miraculous, amazing things happening to this guy. These are the table servers. Men full of wisdom, men full of faith. They were selected out and said, you guys do the hands-on ministry and make sure the people are cared for. That's where this came from. All right, let's make it practical again before we close up. How are deacons selected? How are elders selected in this church? Well, elders are selected by elders. You go, well, that's kind of weird. Not really. According to scripture, those that are leading the church need to put people through testing. So what we do as an elder board is keep our eyes out at all times. We listen to what you have to say. We're always checking. Are there some gentlemen that are standing out where they're currently serving? Are they doing what is necessary? Do they have high character? Can they serve in this capacity or are they too busy? What is happening in their lives? We watch that and then all through our meetings we lay out names and discuss different individuals that we might consider going to and saying, would you consider being an elder? If we do that, we talk to them, they come and shadow our elder board for a period of time. 
They get to watch all of our meetings, engage in our meetings, but not vote. We get a feel for them. They get a feel for us. We are a weird group. So quite frankly, you need to shadow us for a while to understand what's going on with us. We're a little bit unusual. Now, after that point, we interview them. We give them a huge 16 different questions they're supposed to write out answers to. We discuss that with them. We interview their wives, find out what their wives are like. Then, if we are ready to move forward, we announce their names to you. And what we're asking for is dirt. (laughs) We're literally saying, what do you think of this person? Do you know something we don't know? Because this is where the congregation gets involvement. They're going to be leading you. So you should have a say. You then come out with everything you have. What's their reputation like? What do people think about this person? We don't want someone that you don't respect. So we ask you, do you have anything on this person, good or bad? At that point, if you give the okay and we give the okay, we vote as an elder team and we lock them in and we announce them to you as an elder. How do we select deacons? Honestly, most deacons come up from within. They'll be serving in a ministry. That leader needs more help. They rise up into leadership because they've been faithful. Other ministries are brand new. You come into this church. God gives you a vision. You're ready to lay the whole vision out. You find your own leadership. You're ready to promote a whole ministry and you're going to do that. You meet with us. We watch over you and a new ministry is born. Other ministries that are existing, almost always we're keeping our eye out. We're asking everyone to ask around who can help out more. We have so much need in this large of a church for leaders. Praise the Lord. We are in a leader heavy church. We have an extraordinary amount of leaders here. Some of you are healing. Some of you are being tapped on the shoulder and saying it's time to go. Let's do this. We'll see what God has. Let's close this up. Verse 14, Paul said, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, meaning further in Macedonia, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. The church, the importance of it is extraordinary. While God is promoting his name and his glory in the world, we are holding that up and being steady. And we are constantly talking about God to the world. We are constantly helping people to grow and supporting the family of God. Why did he use words like pillar and foundation? He could have used anything. Well, it's probably because in Ephesus where he's writing, something special was there. What did I tell you last week was there? One of the seven wonders of the world. Do you remember that? The temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was right there in their city. What was it? A huge temple supported by pillars on a large foundation. They had 127 pillars that supported the ceiling. They were all marble, most overlaid with gold, some studded with gems all around. Every individual pillar was given by a different king of a different nation. This was an extraordinary, massive structure. So Paul's writing to them going, Hey, you remember your most popular thing that everybody knows about? That's us in the world. We are supporting the truth and laying the foundation for people to grow in Jesus Christ.
And then he gives the core of that very same gospel we are to promote. And he cites what most people believe is an early hymn or an early creed that they would memorize their doctrine with. And he says it this way. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Meaning what we didn't know before, but now we know is what makes a saint, what makes a Christian. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that encapsulated in a poetic way? He, who's he? Jesus Christ. He appeared in a body. That means a little over 2000 years ago, God became flesh and dwelt among us known as Jesus of Nazareth. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, most likely means that the Spirit, Holy Spirit came in, had him do miracles, raised him from the dead, and attested that he was not just a man, but the God-man. Was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, meaning in the heavenlies and on earth, and he was preached among the nations. It was not just the Jews, it was all people worldwide, Gentiles, pagans. And he was believed on in the world. People locked in with him. And it changed their lives. Real quick side note. Do you realize that in a short span, I would say only of a couple hundred years, but now we're 2,000 years later. In 2,000 years, a Galilean carpenter who's a nobody that lives in a nobody part of the world from a nobody city has absolutely altered the face of the earth. All nations have been impacted by a quiet guy in the middle of nowhere. How is that even possible? I mean, we look and we go, well, my my attempts and my efforts aren't going to really matter. Do you think the disciples thought that that was going to go worldwide? No way. Jesus knew it because he wasn't just a man. He was our savior and Messiah and exploded all over the world. And our whole world is different because of that little corner of the world and what Jesus did. How amazing is that? He finishes with this. He was not just believed on in the world, but he was taken up in glory. He ascended in front of witnesses back to continue ruling the earth from the heavens. Now, do you believe that? If you believe that and you are part of the family of God then do you not want good leadership? Do you not want people that will care for you of high integrity? Certainly you do. Then I would suggest this to you. Pray for us. Because there is no way average, ordinary men and women are going to be able to withstand the onslaught that we have. I'm under tremendous spiritual attack all the time. Why? Because it would be really disruptive to the church If I fall and I'm rooted out of leadership, it would completely disrupt your lives. And that is what exactly Satan wants. So with all our pastors, with all our leaders, with all our deacons, with everybody here, men, women, and children support us in prayer because we can't do it alone. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, giving us a sober look at what you're trying to do and how you protect your family. Father, make us into good men and women. Raise up new men and women to guide us and lead us that we might be more of what you desire. May you be praised and glorified.
In Jesus' name, amen.